Hey, welcome to Rainier View. My name is Jeff. I'm part of the teaching team here, and we are continuing our series Royals today. Now, back when I was an undergrad, I had this moment where we had purchased this vehicle, a 1986 Ford Country Squire LTD station wagon. Yes, full Griswold, fake wood paneling. Uh, and we got this vehicle because I was doing an internship that was about an hour south of downtown Chicago where, uh, where I was attending uh, college at the time. And so when you have a large vehicle, this was far, far before the age of DoorDash and all that delivery stuff, you had a vehicle, you were always doing a food run. And somebody found out that there was a Krispy Kreme Donuts in one of the nearby suburbs. And so one night, everybody on my floor decided, let's go. Uh, and so we load up the car. Uh, by the way, if you've never seen it, the back seat, the seats actually face each other, uh, the, these bucket seats. And so there are four dudes back there. I'm pretty sure you know, the shocks were completely done by the end of that drive. May or may not have been sparks scraping, scraping on the back of the bumper there, driving down the freeway. But we got to Krispy Kreme, enjoyed those beautiful golden discs of warm, sugary, bready goodness. Uh, and there's one guy on our floor, I can't remember who it was for the life of me, uh, but he had decided to get a whole dozen. And it wasn't a whole dozen to last three days. It wasn't a whole dozen to share. He had his dozen, and over the course of driving there and back, he had had not one, not two, not three, not six. He had polished off an entire dozen to himself. And I'm always so grateful for the fact that he did not hurl until he got back to the dorms, that it did not happen in my car. Now, I share that story because, as we're in this series, and we're going to see from the life of Solomon in a moment, uh, the guy on my floor, he didn't understand the difference between what you could do and what you should do. And that's why we're in this series. We're in this series on royals, looking at these ancient kings uh, of Israel and looking at the, mostly the books of First and Second Kings from the Bible and seeing the lessons that they have. Uh, sometimes the misplaced hope and expectations that we have on human leaders and the lessons we can learn from that, but also just the lessons that we can learn from their lives as we examine them. What can we take away and apply to our own lives? Now, these are big flyovers. We're not going to be able to get into all the details, especially the individuals that we've looked at so far. There's so much material, but we want to do a big overview and take away some of these major lessons, some of these major takeaways. Uh, and so, Solomon is known best for his desire for wisdom above all else. And this probably stems from the fact that as a young, uh, a young king, he has to step into the shoes of his father, David. And it's a big shoes to fill and step up and lead. And so I think he recognized out the gate, I'm going to need power and wisdom beyond myself if I'm going to continue to lead this, this people into uh, a, a growing kingdom. Uh, that's, that's good for everybody. And so pick up with me in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is what Solomon uh, is described as. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will, 
never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. Now, first off, out the gate, Solomon ends the wishes debate. The goal is not to wish for more wishes. The goal is to want for more wisdom. We see this clearly in young Solomon's heart here. Notice that Solomon's wish for more wisdom, uh, it's, it's not a desire for more for himself. He doesn't ask for a more cush life. He doesn't ask for, can I take a Mediterranean cruise now that I'm king uh, of Israel? He doesn't ask for a new power lift gate on the back of his chariot. He doesn't ask for anything more for himself. His request for wisdom is set so that he could learn to bless and lead others well. The heart of wisdom is always tied to caring for others. Look one more time, 1 Kings 3, verse 9. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? I've said this on numerous occasions before, but it's so important. I'm going to say it again. Wisdom is not intelligence. It's not raw smarts or intelligence. Wisdom is the ability to know how to live rightly. Some of the most intelligent people who've ever lived in human history have been some of the most unwise. So intelligence and wisdom are kind of two different things. And the ability to know how to live rightly is tied to and centered to how can I bless others with my life and for Solomon with his leadership. And see, we see a famous example of this right out the gate. If you continue reading on your own in 1 Kings 3, I'm not going to read the whole account, but there's this account of uh, two two moms that come to Solomon. uh, And one mom's child dies in the middle of the night. And they both claim that it's the the other mom's child. They're both saying that, no, no, it's her child who died. No, no, it's her child who died. And so Solomon brings them uh, before him, and, and he asks them, you know, explain, explain your position. Uh, and as Solomon is hosting the way too real uh, lives of ancient Israel housewives, he says, okay, bring me the living child. Here's what we're going to do. Bring me a sword. Let's cut this thing down the middle, and you can each have half. And the woman who was the true liar says, oh, good, right? Which is hard to wrap our mind around the savageness of it. But then The woman whose baby was still alive says, no, 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 fine. She can have the child, right? Solomon's wisdom points out who the real mother is in this situation, okay? And that wisdom that was available to Solomon, the beautiful thing that God's word tells us is that same wisdom is available to you and I today. In the New Testament, in the book of James, we read this in the first chapter. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, what is not promised in there is that God will give us wisdom. It doesn't say God will give you riches, God will manifest the life that you desire on your vision board. That's not what what it says here. It doesn't say that you're going to have all the money that you would like. This isn't a verse to manipulate to say you can get all the financial blessings that you want and God's going to grant those to you, despite what some pastors and teachers might tell us, God's desire is not to just manifest more money for ourselves beyond taking care of our basic needs. What God's desire is, is that there will be more of his character that is manifested in us. 
And that heart will always, always, always lead us to look to bless others and to care more for others. And Solomon's reign exemplifies this right at the start, right out the gate, that Solomon is not just concerned for himself, but he's concerned for the welfare of the people that he's been entrusted to lead. Look with me in 1 Kings in chapter 4, picking up verse 20, that his, his administration was amazing in the ability to see people cared for, not by force, by care. We read there, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River from Tipshah to Gaza and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Now, how can we not pause here and read in this passage about the peace that Solomon was able to bring to the region of Gaza? And if you're catching this live, uh, the, the war that's happening there right now, would you, right now, take a moment, pause, make a note, make a, make a alert on your phone, a reminder on your phone, to take one minute today and pray for peace to be returned to that region. Now, Aside from asking for wisdom from God, part of being a wise person is to learn as broadly as possible. Solomon really exemplifies this in his life. There's a leadership phrase, leaders are learners, right? And man, Solomon just, again, he exemplifies this. His wisdom was diverse, it was broad, it was really, he had this interdisciplinary mind before the word interdisciplinary existed. Look what it says later on in 1 Kings 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight. And the breadth of understanding is measureless as the sand on the seashore. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and sent by all the kings of the world who had heard his wisdom. And his wisdom is actually collected in a kind of condensed form in a book of the Bible called the Proverbs. This collection of wisdom is available for any and all of us. This timeless source of knowing how to live rightly has been available to each and every generation with some wisdom such as these. Consider some of these short one-liner Proverbs that, that are in that book. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. And this wisdom was available to Solomon because he pursues God, because he asks God for wisdom, and that wisdom is available for you and I today as well. And so the next time you are struggling with what to do, you're facing a decision, you're not certain what the right next steps are, consider beginning with this. Use prayer as your first resort, not your last resort. Use prayer as your first resort, not your last resort. Because we see that in the life of Solomon. As he's starting his rule, starting his reign, he asks God for wisdom on the front end. And so why does he do this, right? Because he knows he needs to lead well. And why should we start with prayer? 
Well, we can see some of the outcomes. We see in Solomon's reign, the visible representation of God being with them. The temple becomes established. And you can read all about that in 1 Kings 8 and how that worked out and all that. But what you need to know is the temple was this visible and central focal point of worship and prayer for the people of God. It was supposed to be uh, like, like a, a beacon of light to the, to the nations around them. The temple becomes this place that's established and dedicated for reconciliation and for when in, where there are injustices, that they would be made right. It's part of the role of this temple. It was a place dedicated for people to turn to in times of war, in times of famine, in times of disease. It was a place dedicated for recent immigrants to come and find a place of safety and belonging. It was a place for people to return to when they'd wandered from God and that meaning had left their lives and they could return to understanding who God was and live under his protection and rule in their lives. And that's all recorded in 1 Kings 8. All I want to read is just a small piece of Solomon's dedication prayer for this temple in this moment. He prays, And may these words of mine, which I prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and cause the people of Israel according to each day's need so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. And so Solomon is all in, right? He is all in and worshiping, uh, pursuing God, seeking that wisdom. But then God says something interesting if you go on and read. He says, but if Solomon... You stop serving me. You stop honoring me. You stop worshiping me. And instead, you turn to worship these other gods. I'm going to take it all away from you. From our point of view, we're like, that's kind of harsh, God. Like, why? Solomon has to be perfect? What's going on here? We need to understand, if Solomon turns away from seeking God fully in his life, it brings harm to all people, okay? Because at that time, these other gods that were worshipped often led to these very cold and dehumanizing practices, including child sacrifice and ritualized prostitution, okay? And God's people were called, were supposed to offer an alternative to all that. They were to be a light in an often dark and confusing world. And so God's like, Solomon, do not turn from this because it's not just going to be bad for you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad for many, many other people. And God is obsessed with helping people, as you read in the pages of the Bible, return to him, live out of a new and different kind of way of living. And so it helps us see why God seems a little hardcore here about his admonitions to, to Solomon, to not stray at all. And so it's how we can make sense of a verse like this when we read it in these narratives. 1 Kings 9, uh, verse 9. People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors up out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them, that is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. See, God will do what he must to get the attention of his people, to get them back on track, pursuing him wholeheartedly, because it matters to all the people around them. There was a, their responsibility to be the light, to extend this loving grace in this different kind of community to the world around them. And we're going to come back to that in a bit, but first we have to see the impact, the positive impact of Solomon leading so wisely up to this point. In 1 Kings 10, he has a visitor, the Queen of Sheba, and uh, she is awed by what she sees in his kingdom. Let's read a little bit of that from 1 Kings 10. 
She says, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. (laughs) I did not want to believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who is delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Now, there's a detail I want to read that's also in 1 Kings 10 that lends credibility that this isn't, isn't just hyperbole. This isn't just like nice things that uh, royals said to one another back in the day. Look at this description of Solomon's kingdom from 1 Kings 10. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. And so the Queen of Sheba's interaction with Solomon and his kingdom and what he's able to accomplish, it wasn't just an exaggeration. This is reality. And it was a reality that wasn't meant for Solomon to just enjoy for himself. It was a way to draw all the nations to come and hear and learn about who the one true God of the universe really was. And so during Solomon's reign, we see all of these nations coming and hearing of the one true God. And so they may have been drawn initially by the shine of Solomon's kingdom, but they walk away knowing the wisdom that he knows that's more precious than gold. Um, As it says elsewhere in 1 Kings, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Now, we need to understand the difference between worship in the temple then and worship now. The the worship at the temple then in Solomon's reign, it was localized. The, The nations were to come and see and learn there. The Christian faith, Jesus flips that around that the wisdom of God is displayed on a cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and it extends to the ends of the earth today. The temple becomes portable through faith in Christ, okay? Uh, And so we, as the people of God, if we're people of faith, we take the temple with us wherever we go. We put on display the wisdom of God that has already been shown and revealed to us. But Solomon used his wisdom in his day to show the people around him that there was a better option than worshiping these idols of wood and stone that truly had no power. They can come and learn about the one true God and the power and the presence that he wanted them to experience in their lives. That in him there's true power. And I think this leads to a lesson for all of us if we are people of faith, that whatever position you hold, whatever influence you have, use that to make God more famous. Use that position, use that influence to make God more known. Not necessarily just by going into a meeting and shouting it, right? But in your conversations, in the platforms you have, in the winsome opportunities that come your way, give God credit, give God the glory, reveal the wisdom that God's put into your life. Use that position. Now, what could go wrong, you're saying at this point? Like, Solomon's reign is on track, everything is going great. How could anything go wrong? But it does. As we see, as we're going to continue, Solomon is tempted and he falls into this trap uh, that has plagued people for centuries, right? The trap of sex and power, right? Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast of labor. 
Okay? But in all seriousness, uh, it's a stark reminder as we turn the corner of Solomon's story here that no human leader is perfect. And yet again and again and again as human beings, we love to prop up leaders on these pedestals and we get more enjoyment in knocking them over than lifting them up, it seems to be, as human beings. And so any and all human leaders will fail you. I will fail you if you hang around Rainier View long enough, right? I will do something to disappoint you, hopefully just in a minor, in a minor way, right? But if, if you spend enough time listening to enough messages, I will offend you with something that I preach. Something's not going to sit right with you, hopefully at least at first, right? But when that time comes, when myself or another human leader lets you down that's in your life, my plea for you is this, especially when it comes to the church space. Don't reject faith. Don't give up on the whole thing just because a human leader failed you. Instead, may that be a moment that you can extend grace, that we can extend the kind of love that Jesus has displayed for us, the care and concern, and that we would seek restoration rather than just seeking what the world prefers to do, to knock down, to condemn, rather than to restore and to redeem. Now, as we saw last week, even if you have a massive failure, it doesn't have to define your entire life. It doesn't have to be your legacy as long as you don't remain stuck there. And herein lies Solomon's problem. As the wisest man in the world, Solomon knows not only what he should do, but he also knows what he could do. Okay, Let's see how this story plays out for Solomon in the later years of his life, picking up at 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his, uh, David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. As I said, Solomon had all the wisdom to know what he should do, but he opts instead for what he could do. And this wisdom that guided so much of his life, that these pillars, they begin to erode. They begin to wear away because, again, Solomon begins to choose for what, opt for what he could do and choose that rather than what he should do, okay? And one lesson about this all is that often we will say, well, experience is the best teacher, and that is true. But sometimes the cost that it costs you to learn from experience is not worth it. It's not worth the pain that it will require of you. And one of my favorite books in the Bible is actually Ecclesiastes, and it's either authored by Solomon or it is, it's collected posthumously, and it's about him. But it's about him exploring all these avenues of life to test out everything, to see where true meaning might be. And ultimately, 
again and again and again, Solomon discovers that they're all dead ends. Unless you honor God with your life and acknowledge that he's there, everything ultimately is meaningless in your life. It's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the problematic part, though, is that Solomon chose to learn these lessons experientially, living it out himself. It says there that he doesn't deny himself access to any pursuit. This was the guy that made silver worthless, like silver. It's just like rocks, right? So he had the means to pursue anything that he wanted to do, and, and he does. Now, again, this is not just about sex. Of course, he is chasing down a path of pleasure that many before him did, and many, many, many after him have done and will continue to do. But there's also this other issue of what he's pursuing here. He's really pursuing these military alliances, these geopolitical alliances with the nations and the peoples around him. By marrying all these women, in essence, Solomon is saying, hey, we're now interconnected. So if you come at me, you're actually coming at your family. You're coming at your daughter. You're coming at your grandchildren. And so he's trying to build this web of kind of mutually assured, uh, you know, like we're not going to come at each other, right? He's thinking about this more global trade. That as we're trading with one another, there's more wealth, there's more goods. Let's keep all the good times flowing. But to do that, he has to build these geopolitical alliances through marriage. He has to marry these women. And if he marries these, these women, it means he has to honor their gods. And we need to remember here that God's problem is not interracial marriages. Some have used this, these kind of verses in the past to say that. That is not what's going on. God's concern is solely about the worship of false gods and false idols here. And he's saying, if you do this, Solomon, you're going to go down this trail. I've already told you what the results will be. And Solomon does it anyways. Because I believe Solomon begins to think, I need to ensure that this kingdom that I've built up endures. And so I need to take these steps to ensure its safety and security. And in order to do that, Solomon trades what he should do for what he could do with disastrous consequences. Because no matter how much wisdom you and I have, okay, we can all be tempted to trust in our own power rather than trust in the power of the one true God of the universe. This is the same common human experience that we all face. And I want to leave us with one more proverb from the very beginning of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1 verse 7. This foundational wisdom that Solomon knew, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, fear here meaning reverence, meaning awe for God, and foolishness meaning choosing what we could do over choosing what we should do.